open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. <coughs> Revelations chapter 20. <coughs> Eleventh verse, eleventh fifteen. We're just going to wait a moment. Okay. Starting in verse eleven, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away, and a place was found, was not found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they have done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death in Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again and again and again for revealing to us your will, your character, your plan, your purpose. Thank you for revealing to us destiny, Father God, eternal destiny, Father God. We thank you that for those who trust in Christ, there is no fear of this death or the second. For our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, our names are written on the palms of your hand, Father God. And no one can snatch us away, God. Give us an understanding into this dreaded place, Father God, the lake of fire. Give us understanding into the second death. Let us not read our Bibles and pass over these things as though they don't mean anything to us or they're not for us, Father God. But they reveal something about you and about human nature, God, that we need to wrestle with and come to terms with as Christians, Father God. The serious implications for everyone who is outside of Christ in a hopeless eternity, Father God, in misery and destruction. This is the second death. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if we have our title up there, Hell, The Verdict. Uh, I am having some trouble with this new download. Is anybody else having this? Just me. Okay. Sensitive subject, no question about it. As we spend time to speak about the reality of hell, it's a place, it's real, it's, it's not a figment of a Christian's imagination, it is a place, it's just as real as heaven is, which is just a place. In heaven there is God everywhere, in hell there is God nowhere, away from the presence of God. I have to be honest, this is the second time in all the years I've preached I've spoke about hell. I'll speak a little bit about that as we go along. But it's a sensitive subject, and not anybody should just take it on. If someone's going to preach and teach upon it, they must be saturated uh, in the love of Christ. They must have a deep love for people. Uh, We're going to see Paul later on. They should have a grasp of the width and the height and breadth of Christian doctrine and how it works together. It's not meant to beat people down or scare people 
Uh, let me explain something. No emotions need to, our emotions need to be fully under control when we're preaching it, teaching it, and listening to this doctrine. Leave our emotions aside, our own personal perspectives. Let the scriptures speak to us what God wants us to hear and have an understanding about this place uh, called Gehenna, hell. And the serious implications of it. Let me give you an illustration of what we just read. How many people like uh, crime dramas besides myself? Anybody? Crime drama? CSI? Cold Case? How about Law and Order? Law and Order Criminal Intent? Forensic Files? That's one of my favorites, Forensic Files. How about uh, that classic, Pastor John's, Andy Griffith? Anybody like that one? John likes that one. That's That's a real classic. I love forensic files. They take a bit of possible evidence. They stretch it. They mold it. They do all sorts of things about it. They recreate the crime scene, and they get the perpetrator later, and they they capture him if he's still alive. Or this cold case, they reopen a case that was... Uh, for 20 years, they couldn't find someone, and all of a sudden, new evidence, new light. Someone takes a new ambition to find them out, and they catch the person after many, many years, and, and the case is closed. Or Law and Order Criminal Tent is one of my favorites because it gets to behind the psychology of the criminal, and even some of the psychology behind the detectives involved. But Law and Order is probably the best because in Law and Order, you get to watch, you get to watch the development of a crime, you get to see the crime. Then you get to see the investigation of the crime. You get to see the, the, the capture of a potential uh, perpetrator. And then you get to see uh, law and order in the courtroom, jurisprudence. You get to see the whole thing played out. And, and I like that. And, and most of the time I like because we know what's going to happen, what's going to happen at the end. They catch the bad guy, right? But there's been several times that I know on law and order where all the evidence, the judge knows he's guilty. The jury knows he's guilty. The attorney knows he's guilty. Prosecutor knows they're guilty. Everybody in TV land knows they're guilty. But because of a lack of what? They get what? They get off. They get freed. And your blood does what? Boils. Why is that? Thank you. Who said that? We want justice. There's a cry in every human heart for what? We want justice. We want the wrong to be made right. We want the bad guy to be captured. We don't want someone to get away with a heinous crime because of a lack of evidence. Or maybe the police uh, ruined the crime scene or whatever it might be. It's justice. It's in us. It makes us human. Without justice, you wouldn't have a society. You'd be an anarchy. You would have a you would you have a dictator would take come in and take over if you didn't have a sense of justice. It's an outcry of the human heart for something that's wrong to be made right. If we lack that, we lack a deep sense of what it means to be human, the human experience. That's what we have going on right now in our text. 
It's ultimate justice. Every wrong that the angels of heaven ever saw committed on this foul earth, what humans done to it, that God created good, yes, very good, every sinful crime will be made right. Understand something. The hands of justice, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they turn. In God's divine court, it might look like they're turning slowly. As Peter says, where is this appearance of the second coming? Do you not notice one fact, Peter says, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day? He's not slow in his coming, but he longs for everyone to repent and come to knowledge of Christ. God's not slow in his justice. This is a season of mercy. Deep, deep mercy and grace where God in loving kindness and forbearance and patience is longing for people to come and repent and accept Christ because he knows there is a sure final second death of absolute eternal misery. Please understand that it goes outside my comprehension. It goes outside of my whys, a how could. I can't even go there. I'm bound by scripture to honor God. Period. The word hell, just the word hell, has the potential to make people very uncomfortable, skeptical, critical, even walk away. I ask you now, how do you feel right now? Are you thinking about dinner? Has the Spirit of God grasped your mind that something serious is going to be said? Can we easily shake it off as though it's not necessary, it's not an essential doctrine? What does it do with me? The 21st century society find the concept of hell vulgar and insulting. And believe that those who believe in it are fools, unreasonable, insulting, self-righteous, haters, religious zealots, antisocial. That all belongs to a bygone era of antiquated religion. We don't need it. It's not for today. They're out of touch with reality. You're talking about hell. You're out of touch with reality. I went to church today. Yeah, wonderful. What did the minister talk about? He spoke about eternal hell. Oh, nice. Nice day at church. Well, when you find out that church is about God, that is a nice day at church. But if it's about you, it's not a nice day at church. We're about God here, amen? But are we out of touch with reality? The modern culture, with its low view on God, with its high optimistic view of human nature, we can fix anything generation. Just give us a problem, we'll rewrite legislation, we'll rewrite a law, we'll throw money at it, we'll throw bombs at it, we'll just, you know, make believe it's not there. We'll, we'll get over anything kind of society we live in. It has no real moral standard to govern life. This society has produced humanity without a conscience. A conscience that has a real grasp on the moral right and the moral wrong and warns of coming disaster. That's what a conscience does. It warns us. 
It's a faculty that God has given humanity to warn us, to evaluate our behavior, be, uh, to evaluate our actions and our words and our motives. Do they line up with the love of God? Do they line up with the word of God? Do they line up with the will of God and the commandments of God? That's what a conscience is. But society has dulled the conscience desensitize the conscience between any kind of moral right, any kind of moral wrong. They do not see moral disaster. They do not see judgment. They don't care about these things. Even though society is falling around them left and right, they turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to it. Do you know that Rome fell because of immorality, decadence, and a fascination with entertainment? Do you know that? If you know history, that's why Rome fell. They, go, they got so fat. They got fat and lazy. Hedonism. Entertainment. Let the good times roll. The new conscience is more convenient. It's more comfortable. It's more tolerable. It's in the in crowd. It's the new conscience. We don't believe in any absolutes, any moral absolutes. Who needs moral absolutes? Just tolerate one another. You do what you want to do, I want to do it. Who cares? Let's eat and drink for all dying tomorrow anyway. Crafty. It's a crafty conscience. It denies, it dismisses every evidence of moral breakdown in society, even a personal's life, until disaster is there. Does it sound familiar? Well, it should, because if you build your house on the sand, when the winds and the storms come in life, it will have a mighty fall. There is no, like, patching it up as it's falling. Jesus is teaching, if you build your life on my, on my teaching, on this rock, when the storms come, no matter how bad they come, it won't fall. You won't need time to patch the house up. We live in a society that does not believe in moral absolutes. This type of society is out of touch with the concept of morality. How could it possibly be in touch with the concept of judgment and hell? There's no conscience. Everybody thinks it's a safe place. Hell is for those Christians, those Bible thumpers, the Jehovah Witnesses, the radicals. Can the teaching about the love of God be consistent with the teaching of the wrath of God? You know, there's one day in human history that proves it. Try to guess which day that was. Come on. Good. Good. Who said that? Good Friday. That was the love of God and that was the wrath of God. That was the justice of God. We believe in that, don't we? Of course we do. We want to. We love it. Yes, they can, and we should, and we need to realize it. I have two concerns into teaching this tonight of part one, and then part two will be later. First is, the teaching on hell is clear as the teaching on heaven is. Matter of fact, it's spoken about more in Scripture than heaven. Uh, I don't know if you realize that. Okay. Okay. and should naturally get its proper place within Christian teaching. Should naturally get it. The second is it doesn't. It doesn't. 
How many people have sat down and heard a minister speak on hell? In depth. In a series. How many times have I heard a minister mention hell in a sermon? Why don't we sit down and spend time with it? And this leads me to believe, because of this fact, we all just answered it, that even within Bible-believing churches, it's misunderstood. And here's the problem, it's misunderstood. So ministers don't teach it because they themselves don't really understand it. That's why. Their emotions are attached to it. Leave your emotions outside when you're talking about this doctrine. Leave your emotions outside when you're listening to this sermon. Let's get to the facts. This is real. There's two eternal resting places. One of eternal bliss, one of eternal misery. Period. That's it. This is not about having the last word. This is not about saying, well, I won that religious war on words. I don't care if I lose how many wars. At the end, you lose. Period. That's it. It's misunderstood. Let me give you an example. Out with another minister one night, we were having dinner, and we were just talking, we were all fellowship, there were several of us. And, you know, several conversations going on, and so on and so forth, and, you know, we're just hawking it up, having a nice time. And uh, I mentioned, I don't know what the conversation was, but I mentioned that I, I did a sermon on hell, and, uh, and I just said a couple of words, that's all. And the other gentleman said to me that I was talking, he says, oh, I never taught on that. I didn't give it much thought, but it came out with a sense of, I don't want to read in between the lines, but he clearly said, I never have taught on that. And it was a sort of sense of wisdom there. A sense of wisdom. I don't teach on that out of wisdom. And I try to like, how could you be in the pulpit for 25 years? And never once... Teach the congregation about what Christ has saved them from. How, how can you? How can I rejoice at the music? You just sung three songs I went to them that spoke about being saved from wrath. If you don't understand hell, that song meant nothing. I, there was no worship today. I challenge your worship. Christ saved us from this. And other ministers seem to be apologetic about it. Indifferent. As though it's insulting. And so Christians are naturally malnourished spiritually. And I'll get to this and I'll show it to you. Malnourished. They're malnourished specifically about God's holiness. That's what they're malnourished about. If you don't grasp hell and you don't understand it, or at least contemplate it when it's brought to your attention, understand something. You have a low view of the holiness of God. A low view of the character of God. Your view is low. My view is low. Any minister that refuses to teach, no matter how much they love the Lord, still has a low view of the holiness of God. The unique character of God. Holiness is, in a short definition, is moral perfection that God is entirely free from all moral evil. Uh, but even, even though that's a correct definition, there still lies a lot of ambiguity to it. Well, what does that mean, Brian? Explain that to me. All right. 
God doesn't, I have no reference to that. I'm filled with sin. My thoughts are filled with sin. My intentions, my motives. I'm, I manufacture sin at an alarming rate. I, I hardly have a pure thought, never mind a pure sentence. How do I grasp this perfect God who's without flaw, without evil intention? Explain that to me. Well, let me explain. I'm glad you asked. I'll do the best I can. Understand, in Scripture, holiness, when it pertains to God, it always means that he's without moral flaw or moral evil like human beings are. That's what it means. It's always comparison to what God is and what we're not. We're not holy. We're un... Thank you, Aunt Diana. Nice to have family in the congregation. God is without human flaws, human sin. He's without any kind of evil. He is totally opposite of us morally. His thoughts, desires, his words, his intentions, his motives, his actions, his attitudes are always consistent with his perfect character, which is namely love. Don't miss it. He has never had an ill thought toward humanity or us personally. He has always had creation's best intentions in his heart. He has never ever had one bad intention ever towards his creation. Never. On the other hand, we, in the whole human race, could never say that statement, could we? No, we couldn't. Life is about ourselves. Society is about themselves. We are selfish, self-centered, always act out of a place of personal satisfaction and reward. Uh, More could easily be said about that. God, by his very nature, could never tolerate sin and those who commit it. Can never. Sin always takes place in his creation and it's never void of, 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 of circumstances. It's never void of consequences. We don't sin in our own little bodies and other people aren't destroyed by it. We never sin and God's not the direct object of our sin. Because all our sin, to be sin, you have to break the moral law of God. To be, break the moral law of God, you are committing sin against God. As we learned last week, against you, O oh God, and you alone have I sinned. Not against your Lord, though he could have said that. He said it personally, against you and you alone have I sinned. God in his very nature cannot tolerate sin. It's an offense to him personally and to his intentions to creation. Sin hurts people. Holiness slash love unites and gives life. Sin separates and destroys life. Sin slash selfishness is always at war with holiness slash love. Sin in the Bible is always defined as a living entity within us, as Paul gives us to us in Romans chapter 7. The law of sin and death. It's it's alive. It's an entity. It's within us. It's it's always in conflict with the law of love, the law of God, and and the commandments of God that those who walk in the flesh could never please God, ever. You cannot please self and please God simultaneously. It is impossible to serve Christ and man. 
Sin is an enemy of divine love. It's an enemy of the will of God. It's an enemy of the moral law of God, the commandments of God. It's both an insult and a crime against the nature of God, as revealed in Scripture. The all-wise and loving creator, the all-benevolent sustainer, and the gracious redeemer. Willful sin against an infinitely holy and loving God is why there is an infinitely miserable hell. And whether we like it or not, if someone's not in Christ, that is where they're going. That's where we were going until we were born again. Let's be careful. Let's be careful for the clay to say to the potter, how come you've made me this way? When properly, when properly understood from a biblical perspective and not from an earthly, emotional, personal perspective, got to step out of ourselves, we begin to better grasp the magnitude of our sin and the sin of the world and what Christ has done for us on the cross. Worship of God is not... When we come here and, we, and, and, and the words, we choose the lyrics and the songs, we play it very carefully. We're not into you feeling good when you leave here. It's not about, I don't care how you feel. I want you to love and obey Christ. And the words we sing should pierce our hearts about what the Redeemer has done for us. Those are the words we choose. We begin to have a better grasp on the magnitude of sin and what Christ has done for us. That's why when we don't teach it, we malnourish the children of God. As I began with, when ministers are not faithful to this doctrine, as with the more favorable ones, uh, 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 like mercy and grace and forgiveness and love, God's people are malnourished. And I'll tell you why. Because on the other side of these more favorable doctrines is the wrath of God. Do you know why we speak about love? Do you know why we speak about forgiveness? Do you know why we speak about mercy? Do you know why we speak about grace? Because without God overcoming his wrath, there would be no doctrine of forgiveness. There would be no doctrine of mercy. There would be no love of God. At all. How can someone make a lifelong ministry about saying that Jesus loves you and never once speak about hell for whence he has saved someone from? I say this very boldly. If someone's not willing to explain in a very sensitive way the reality of the wrath of God and eternal hell, they have no right to speak about the love of Christ at all. Disqualified as far as I'm concerned. Because all you're doing to me is sentimentalism. And you're not giving me holy divine love. Amen. You're not. You're making me feel good for a minute, for an hour, but when the tough times come, that sermon I heard going to do me no good. I need divine love. Something that's going to carry me through to the worst times of my life. So this lack of teaching, whether intentional or unintentional on hell, has a direct way in which we view Christ and his work. 
the direct view. I challenge you with this. How deep does your gratitude go? How much is your gratitude growing? That's a direct understanding of the holiness of God. It's not about feelings. It's about revelation. It's about deep conviction that changes us from the inside out. It's this kind of doctrine that makes me a better husband, makes me a better pastor, makes me a better human being, a better human being. We'll see how Paul closes out later in application. Let's go to our text. Like I said earlier, this is a courtroom drama with eternal implications. It's God on his throne in all his regal splendor and judicial power to make every wrong right and ultimately serve justice. There is no circumstantial evidence here. No one's crying foul play. No one's crying I'm innocent. And there are no atheists in this courtroom, let me tell you right now. But all the facts are in The books are open, and all man's sins are revealed. Please understand this. Before I even speak about hell in the next sermon, I want to speak about the courtroom drama that's taking place. Because what happens when a person enters hell, understand something. Don't think about, oh, he has to pass through the judgment before you go to hell. You've got to stand before God and give a full Account of one's life. You have to hear the verdict. Take him away. Please understand that. No circumstantial evidence. All the facts are in. The books are open. All man's sins are revealed. All the secret sins of men and all the clear ones are revealed. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Listen to this. The sins of some people are conspicuous. They're open. Everybody can see that, right? And it goes before them to the judgment. But the sins of others, more respectable people, they'll appear later. The secret ones that you can't see, God sees those. That's what Paul is saying. They might not be as conspicuous as the prostitute and the tax collector and the murderer. But they're there. And God sees them. And when they stand at the judgment, the books will be open and God will reveal to them exactly everything they've done. The books are open. All the pain that their sin has caused others will be exposed. All those people that were created in God's image, the willfulness of each sin that was done will be shown. The premeditated nature of many of these sins will be revealed to them personally. The motives of selfishness selfishness and self-gratification at the expense of others will be exposed instantaneously right there. The malice, slanderous nature of many of these sins will be represented when these books are open. All sinners will hear the indictment against them. One sin after another after another. They will be forced to remember Every single solitary sin they've ever committed before God. Every one. Everything will be exposed. Every word spoken in the darkness will be brought to the light. 
No one will have a convenient lapse of memory at this time. God will make his case with all clear evidence. The dull conscience that someone died with will be awakened as sharp as ever. This conscience will have no props to hide behind. Have no pride, no excuses, no justifications, no easy willful forgetfulness, no blaming others or their high opinions of themselves. Their conscience won't be able to hide behind the title of sir, or boss, or pastor, or elder, or reverend, or doctor, or priest, or pope, or president, or governor, or coach, or captain, or movie, or athlete. All the accolades of men, all the praises of men, will be annihilated in the presence of Almighty Christ. That's where men are going. You might have thought you were a good person here. You will find out what you were. What people accomplished, what they didn't accomplish will be meaningless. Only what is written in the books. What people thought about themselves is meaningless. They will hear and see the overwhelming evidence of a life spent on self, self self-gratification and not on the worship of God. As Jesus says, he who gains his life in this world will lose it in the next. God will show every time he actually was revealing himself to every human being. Either through conscience, through nature, through Moses, or through the gospel. God reveals himself to people. But as Paul teaches in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth with unrighteous living. You and I can't see how God is revealing himself to people in nature, in law, in conscience, in gospel, revealing to them that they need to be saved, that there's something wrong, but they keep on suppressing it with more sin and more unrighteousness and more sin. And they will stand there that day and God will show them Every time he was revealing himself to them. But they chose deliberately and willfully to suppress that truth and conviction of God. Paul says they will be without excuse. This is forensic spiritual science at its best. This is every cold case reopened and closed. This is law and order of a divine kind, divine jurisprudence. Where there are no no plot twists, no plea bargains, no new white witnesses, no charismatic defense attorney winning the jury over, no lack of evidence to think in that there is a cause for reasonable doubt. Guilty is the only verdict. It's a seamless exercise of divine justice. What might have looked like justice delayed, but it's not justice denied. Christ will be in all his elements. Please don't miss this fact. Christ gets mocked today, as he's did in 2,000 years, as when they bring him to the cross. As he hung on the cross, they mocked him and said, if you are the son of God... Come down and save yourself. They mocked him. 
As he was saying, forgive them for they do not know what they do. As he was giving his spirit up to the Father, they mocked him. Christ will be in his element. He will not be mocked. He will be there with all his divine power. Understand something. I've shared this testimony before. Several times I've been at the court, mostly on the good side, a couple times on the bad side. But anyway, I remember being in an elevator and a judge came in. Not a big man, small, thin man. Graying hair, all the gentlemen, but these two big cops next to him, bigger than me with their guns. and you know, All the authority of court and state were there, represented. I was unnerved. I was like, it was serious. I wasn't slouching in the corner with some attitude. I basically almost stood to attention, naturally. The DA was a girl, she probably like 25 years old, assistant DA. But when she spoke, she spoke with authority in that courtroom. They convicted a man of rape. Heinous crime, I had to hear, over a whole week. Just heinous, heinous. And that DA went to town on this man, who was twice the size of me. Little girl. Full authority of court behind her. Not impressed by this man's stature, his attitude, his arrogance, his demeanor, his meanness. Didn't care. And then the judge had no problem saying, you're found guilty. They might mock Christ today, but when people leave this earth, they'll be outside of their element. And they'll be in Christ's element. They'll be before him who holds life and death in his hands. They will stand there and appear before Christ. There will be no one there to save them. No defense attorney. Nothing will be there. Just them and the books are open with all their sin. They will know without a word, without a shadow of a doubt that they are guilty. There will be no help me. There will be no cry for mercy. There will be no, I'm innocent. I didn't mean it. Give me leniency. There will be none of it at all. They will see Christ in all his divine glory. Him who they mocked. Him who they suppressed the truth. When he convicted them through the law, through the gospel, through conscience, and through nature. Christ will not be outside his element. If I saw that judge on the beach, I'd kick sand in his face. Only joking. Because he's not a very impressive man at all. He's outside of his element on the beach. In the court, that's his element. Christ might get kicked around today. But understand something. His element is coming. And all men are going to stand before him. And Christ won't be 20 feet high. I say this over and over and over again. Christ will probably be about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, five, thin, wiry. But when he speaks, he speaks with divine authority. And everybody will know that this judge has the right to cast into hell. Do not fear him who can kill the body. I'll tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who can kill the body and then throw the soul into hell. Fear him. He has authority to cast into hell. And people are mocking Christ. People are hearing the gospel. You might be here today and not saved. You will stand before Christ. Let me close with this one application. 
Christ has the ability and the willingness to pardon the worst of sinners. He has the ability. Whomsoever comes, I will not cast away. But he also has the authority, the ability, and the willingness, please understand this, to cast a man into hell unequivocally, without blinking his eye, without blushing, without being apologetic, without being shameful, to cast a soul into hell. He's got no problem with that. He can do one or he can do the other. He will not deliberate. He will not, be, uh, he will not get caught off guard. He will not make a mistake. He will have no problem knowing he's throwing a soul into hell to eternal misery. You and I could not do that. We could not carry that kind of authority. We couldn't make that decision at all. I, I, when I stood on court and I had to say guilty to a man that I knew was going to life for prison, I, I shook when I filled that out. I shook. I didn't just say, oh, I know he was guilty. Everybody knew he was guilty. The evidence was there, but I couldn't just easily say, go to jail for life. Christ will have no problem saying, cast his soul into hell at all. I want to close with this one verse of scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've gone over it already. Practical application, okay? Paul Paul knew this about Christ. What I just told you, Paul knew it. He says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Just the first sentence of verse 11. Listen, first sentence. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The doctrine of hell and a certain judgment doesn't cause this Christian to shy away. It causes me to love humanity. Not to stand in judgment of humanity. I stand in solidarity with those in Adam, where I used to be. Fully persuaded that they will stand before this Christ I just preached. They will stand, your friends, your family, they will be there. Whether we like it or not. It is our duty to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And to plead with God and plead with men to save people. That's what Paul, that's how Paul reacted to this reality. Paul didn't say, oh, that was a good sermon. Let me just go and buy my way. No, no. This is a sermon that should grip the heart. Are we in the business of warning men? Does that mean I go to the corner with a bullhorn? If God raises you up to do that, you got our blessing. You got our blessing. Brother Lou, who comes here on Thursday night, he goes to another church. All he does, I see him on the the trains, on the trains, going from one car to the other, unashamed of the gospel, telling men to repent and loving them at the same time. 
But more practically for most of us, it will be, I will make sure I am an accessible Christian. I will make sure that the door of my heart and my life is open to other people. I will make sure that I'm investing myself in people who don't know yet. So that maybe by me being in their life and slowly witnessing to them and praying for them and pleading with God the Father, that they will open up their eyes and they too would repent. Please, don't don't think you don't have an obligation to hear this sermon and not care for people. You should love humanity better than humanity loves themselves. Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for a revelation of your holiness. A revelation of the divine authority you've given your son Christ. Who by grace has granted us to live forever with him, Lord God. We thank you, Father God, that our sins are forgiven, that Christ took took your wrath. He took our hell. He took our burden. We thank you, Father God, that he left us now with a song and with a praise and with a skip and a song of redemption in our heart, Father God. But Father, I pray for each and every one of us that we start to grow up and that we hear the trumpet call of Paul knowing and being fully persuaded that men have to stand before this divine Christ and give an account of good and evil. And woe to that man who is not born again. Only, only the second death. Father God, those who are born twice die once. Those who are born once die twice. Father God, let us all grasp. It is our duty to compel men with love and wisdom, prudent words, and an accessible life to flee the wrath of God. In Jesus' name.